On May 19, 1999, Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation hosted a one-on-one conversation with Moises Kaufman, director, playwright, and founder of Tectonic Theatre Project, and Mary Overly, the creator of Viewpoint. Here, these two singular artists discuss theatrical theory and relate it to their work. Kaufman, as he creates the Laramie Project with his company, Overly, in developing viewpoints. This is an insightful conversation between two artists who thrive on exploration and breaking into new forms. Hello, I'm director-choreographer Donald Byrd, and you are listening to SDCF, Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. I arrived in New York in 1987. In 1988, I joined the Experimental Theatre Wing of New York University. And Mary was... I'm not sure. I think she, she either was the head of, of the Experimental Theatre Wing at the time, or had just left something like I know that that she and the viewpoints became a really important part of what happened to me when I first got to the United States. And Wendell Beavers, who either who ran it the next year, who took over it the next year, uh, <laughs> one of those things. Uh, what happened was that all of a sudden, here I was coming from Venezuela, and I and I arrived in New York, and the viewpoints kind of became one of the first theoretical things that were kind of thrown at me. And over the years, I've kind of used that and departed from that and kind of developed my own theoretical relationship to the work. And I think the thing that we, that both Mary and I found interesting is that I've always been kind of in love with her ability to kind of formulate theories. Um, I think that we are usually really afraid of theory in the theater. There's this kind of phobia that, oh, we, don't, we shouldn't be spending so much time talking about this. We should just do it. And I think that with Mary, she has this incredible capacity to kind of articulate these ideas that she's thinking about. And that creates for this really interesting relationship between her ideas and the work. Um, and that was something that I took a lot from, that I really, that, that I held on to, because although the work I do right now is not really uh, viewpoint work, uh, the way that she was thinking theoretically about the stage really encouraged me to think theoretically about the stage. So I think that a little bit of what we wanted to do was kind of talk about that. I still, I, after all these years, I've remained fascinated about her ideas, and we meet every time she's in New York, and we have very long dinners where we keep talking about, oh, what are you thinking about now? And, and it has become this kind of like collaboration over the period of the last 10 years. So, so I think that what we jolted down is that it would be kind of fun to have me interview her and ask her what she's been up to and how, you know, and a little bit about how she got to formulating the viewpoints and where has she gone from there. And also for her to interview me about how she has seen me go from, you know, starting to work on my ideas and where I've, I've taken that up to this point. Um, I think when I was thinking about this and thinking about this talk, one of the things that I realized was I looked up the word theory in the English Oxford Dictionary. 
And it's very interesting. I, I do that a lot, actually, I find. That when I'm going into a rehearsal and I'm thinking about something, I go to the dictionary and look up for words that are becoming important in my thinking about something. Um, and theory, I was really amazed to find out, comes from a word in Greek that means sighting, seeing, contemplating. And it's so interesting that now theory is understood as, as a system of ideas that are meant to either be proved or disproved. Uh, but in its origins, it meant contemplation. And it meant the possibility to really observe an event. And to me, that's so terrific, because it means that theory uh, is part of a dialectical process. And that is really something that excites me, that you can you will be thinking theoretically about the stage and then go into a rehearsal room with a group of fellow theater artists and work and then come go back and rework on your theories and keep come having this kind of dialogue between your theoretical thoughts and the kind of pragmatic work and and that's kind of how theory evolves and that's a, a really kind of great thought. What kinds of things are you thinking about these days? I mean what theories are you working on yourself? <laughs> it's very strange. Some of the members here of, of Tectonic Theater Project are here so we Today we, we had the second day of our rehearsal process. Um, I think with, with gross indecency, one of the theoretical things that we were dealing with was how can theater reconstruct history? Uh, with the story of Oscar Wilde, there were all these different sources. Some people said this happened, some other people said something else happened. And what was interesting was how can theater relate to the past? How can we take something from history and and learn from it and, and use it to grow as, as a race. And at the same time, that leads to the question, what is history? And I think in this piece that we're working now, um, it's called the Laramie Project. And what we did is that the company went to Laramie, Wyoming after the murder of Matthew Shepard. And we interviewed, uh, we did uh, close to 100 interviews with people in Wyoming. And what we're doing now is we're constructing a piece about based on those interviews. And I think that the big theoretical question that we're asking is how can theater relate to current events? How can we kind of, uh, how can a theater company go somewhere, have an experience, learn from a different group of people that are going through something important at the time, come back and tell it to a different, tell it to another community? Is it in a sense, history also, I mean, it's a similar, it's it is a similar question, yeah. It's history, but it's more recent history, so what, <coughs> what different things do you have to think about in terms of this kind of history where it just happened as opposed to just reading what somebody wrote about it. Right. I, I, I am thinking about this piece as a companion piece to gross indecency in a way. Not because the treatment of Matthew Shepard, the murder of Matthew Shepard, relates very strongly to the treatment that Oscar Wilde got, but because formally it is posing exactly a very similar question. You know, really past history with more recent current history. And the, the big question that is coming up for us as a company as we go work on it is the issue of representation. How do you interview somebody, look at them, experience them, then go off and portray them? What is this act of portrayal? When Oscar Wilde has been dead for 100 years and all we know from him is what's written in books, books become the object on which you base this history. But here, how do we do that? And that's become like the major point. You know, and also it's raised up a lot of issues about ethics. What is our responsibility to the people we interview in terms of how we portray them? Because they're still alive. They're still 
you know, we keep hearing from the people we interview things like, well, we've, we've opened our hearts to you. We just make sure you tell the story right. And um, it's meaning from their perspective. <laughs> right. Well, that's, of course, what the big question is. It's like, we can't tell the story right. Because the story, I mean, how can you tell the story right? According to whom, of course? Well, you, that's what you learned from uh, in the Ask a Wild experience. You're right. looking at different perspectives on the same story. So you have to do the same thing here. Right? Well, yes. The difference is that here, it's very interesting, because I was now in England directing Grossi Decency there. And there was another play going on on the West End about a trial that had recently happened in England. And the way that they portrayed the trial, the way that that play was constructed was a hyper-realistic depiction of uh, courtroom. And it was one hour long, and it was entirely based on transcripts that was very lightly edited. Um, and the, the whole behavior was very naturalistic, and it was really trying to imitate what had happened in the courtroom. So I got this call from this reporter who was writing this article about representation. About, he said, so I, I understand that you're that Gross Indecency is a much more fictional play than this other play. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what a wonderful question. You know, is it more fictional? You know, and then I thought, well, as a thought experiment, what happens if a group of actors witnesses a trial, and then they go away, and they have plastic surgery, and they change their vocal cords so that they look exactly like the people they're doing, and they take an hour of the trial, so they're not editing the text, they're doing exactly the text, so it's like a photograph of what happened for an hour. You have the, a hyper-realistic depiction of a set, and that's what you do. But how, you know, is that real? Is that the event? And even in that situation, that's not the event. That's a representation. That's a fiction. Well, isn't anytime you do, you're doing theater, you're doing a representation of something. You're not doing the actual thing. So, yeah. what different goals are, do you have doing something theatrical as opposed to doing a documentary film? Right, but even. But that's a really interesting point. You know, Henri Cartier-Bresson said that photography is the most subjective of all arts. And so I think that you, even when you, there's this great fallacy by which we live, that there's this thing called truth, and that that thing is attainable. And that when you see a documentary, that you're seeing the thing. You know, these are the videotapes of these people. This is what they said. Well, of course, these are the videotapes of these people that has been heavily edited in terms of what they said, only a, a little bit of their text has been used in context that kind of reconstructs what they, their meaning is. So I'm really fascinated with this whole fallacy of like, there's this close, more close to reality or farther away from reality. And so I think that the play will deal with two things. One is of course the subject, but formally it will deal with a lot with that issue of how, how do we relate to reality? And hence, what is reality? And can, can it be recreated? Well, one response is, is, has been... Uh, oh, there she is. Bye. How are you? How are you? I was standing in your way. Oh, good. Do you have all the answers? No, I have questions. Lovely to have you here. This is Mary Overly. Can I get you some of the Yes. Smith and people like that. I mean, then she's trying to represent 
she interviewed people as you did, and then she recreated them as she started through her artist's eye. How do you respond to that, that sort of representation? I love the work, her work. I love her work. Um, I think that, that what we're focused on is form. Is you know our, our mission, as you know, is the mission of the company is to create works that explore theatrical language and form. We want to talk about what happens on the stage and how can what how can we use the medium of the stage to articulate, really use the medium of the stage to articulate uh, ideas or thoughts. And I think that. Uh, Anna Devere Smith is real, and I shouldn't speak for her because, you know, I'm not that close to her work. But it seems to me that she's really focused in talking about a certain reality and talking about her experience of a certain reality. And I think that um, what I'm trying to do is, yes, talk about that reality, but also talk about the theater. I'm really interested in talking about the theater in the work that I do. So that when people leave the, the theater, they, they can talk about the subject, but they can also talk about the form. And, and how can we do this in a way that we could do it in film and television? And why is it that we can do something in the th using the actual vocabulary and language of the stage that you can't do? And Mr. Bar, the conversation. All right, so why, why don't we do what we plan to do? Okay. Should we? We can try it. Yeah? Or no? Or, or do you want to yeah. take it from where we are? Or? I'm I have a question on what yeah, you yeah, said, yeah. which is, uh, why are you interested in doing that? Or, uh, talking about the theater to the audience? Yeah, today we were just, we are talking about that in rehearsal today. We were talking about this thing that we were trying to do, and, and one of the members said, why? Uh, why do we want to talk about this? Because I think that there is a way in which Over the past hundred years, the way that we have used the theater has been mostly with realism and naturalism. And that has kind of done great harm to kind of really pushing forward the possibilities. And I think that in order to continue to think about the possibilities, there are things that you can say in the theater that you can only say in the theater. I mean, we've learned that there's things that you can say in film that you can only say in film. But we've forgotten that there are things that can happen on the stage between an audience and a theater and the and stage that can only happen there. And I think that as a community we need to remember that. Does that make sense? Does that answer the question? Yeah. I think that's why. And also just because I'm really fascinated with it. Like one of the things that I, I am I am I I devour books about theater. And I just adore thinking about it. And so it's part of my fascination. So it's a very egotistical way of Keep studying, I think. Now should we do what we're going to do? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions okay. about your work. What I did is I, I, I talked to everybody a little bit about how I got to be familiar with, with the viewpoints mm. and how I came in contact with your work and how we've been having these long conversations into late hours of the nights every so often where we keep, like, talking about these theoretical things. And I guess, I guess the, the first question I have is about where did all this fascination with form and with kind of being able to talk about dance and 
when, when did your ideas about dance begin to be formulated? I, I mean, I think it happened when I was born. <laughs> That's all I can say, you know, because I, I never got to a point where I changed my mind, you know, like I was studying something and then went boom. It was more a, a question of uh, constantly looking for something, you know, and then <laughs> that's it, that's it, that's it. When, when it was, you know, I recognized things. You started learning dance when you were nine, right? And you danced for how long? I mean, you <laughs> that's a bad question. You danced for how long before you moved? Before you left to San Francisco, you went to San Francisco after that, yeah. right? Yeah, till 17. Yeah. And then 17, why did you move to San Francisco? Well, because I wanted to be an answer. And what did you do in San Francisco? <coughs> I started, I, I first of all, I went in shock because that was the first time I'd ever been out of, well, the second time I'd been out of Montana. And I had no idea how to use public transportation or, you know, the world was just like, mm-hmm. And Secondly, I went into shock because I thought I was studying dance in Montana. I really was convinced I was, you know, and uh, so I walked into a ballet class and <coughs> took the whole bar. Then everybody went out in the center floor and I, God, they all seemed to move exactly the same. They were doing these combinations and I was running into them and I was like, <laughs> so I had, had a very bizarre kind of ballet class where we did improv in the middle of and uh, I thought that was ballet until I was, you know, 17. So that was. And you, so, so your training was mostly in, in classical and and what? And was it mostly classical? It was. Or? It was classical bar and improvisation center floor work. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. So then, when you got to to San Francisco, who did you start working with? Yeah. Then I sort of studied around the moderns. Graham, mostly, and I hated them. I just absolutely was appalled. Why? <laughs> not what I was looking for. I, I couldn't. I didn't like the emotionality. No. And, and I was really. I suffered a lot. <laughs> you did. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean by emotionality? Um. <clears throat> now I appreciate it. Okay, so now I can talk with like a, like a real deep appreciation. But but mod the moderns, as far as I'm concerned have an attitude that is um, specific to the project of the choreographer. For instance, Graham, you know, has this, you know, this angst that has to be worked out and you really must be there with that in some manner or other in order to get your body to do it. Um, so there's an interesting kind of acting or spiritual work that goes along with the technique. You know, the same with Kumamon, it's this sense of healing the world and praising God. And, and I was like... <laughs> <laughs> no, not today. Yeah. <laughs> not in this lifetime. Not in this lifetime. And so you started working in a company that was in these vocabularies? Is that what happened? Um, I would do sort of... I would sort of... Everybody was making little choreographies and getting them. Mm. So what, what made you leave San Francisco and come to New York? I, um, Margaret Jenkins moved from New York to San Francisco and opened the first Cunningham studio on the West Coast. Uh -huh. And um, 
you know, I was there in a flash because I, I just had a sense that, I mean, I was trying everything because I was so miserable. And <clears throat> when I took that class, I realized that I was like in the presence of what I had been looking for since I was a child, you know, I was like <gasps> totally excited. And um, even though it wasn't him and I'd never seen him cutting him work. And then after a few years, he came out and I saw the work and I was just like, and then a few weeks later, I saw the Grand Union. Do you have people know the Grand Union here? And I went to see it, 
and it was one of the most beautiful pieces I've ever seen. And it was, you know, marrying one place, and the music began, and she began this movement, and she never moved from that place. And it was, first of all, the shock of that, to see a dancer that was moving, but never, like, sh never really, you know, moving. And then I went, and I was, I, it was really uh, kind of <coughs> lyrical and, and wonderful and all those things that, that, that you kind of expect. And then I went back to Mary and I said, Mary, how did you do that? And she said, yes, I choreographed it in space. So I was moving around a lot and doing all these things. And then I went to sleep in the rehearsal. And when I woke up, I realized that I needed to take the space away from the dance. <laughs> so that she had removed the space and just, and your body knew but it was no, and it was great because it created something that I could have never thought. Oh, this is what she was doing, but there was something about it that made perfect sense. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so you get to New York, the Grand Union, and I think that now we look at the Grand Union and we think, all right, yeah, pivotal moments in postmodern dance. I mean, right now we look back at them and we say, okay, these are, this is not only the, 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 the group that did it, but these are a lot of the people who really have gone. Wasn't Trisha Brown part of that yes. as well? And these are the people that kind of have gone on to kind of like you look at you look at Trisha's work and you look at Paxton's work and you look at all these people's work and they really came out to define postmodern dance for us. And I'm really interested. When was this idea of postmodernism or like the term? When did that? When do you remember the first time you heard the term? And uh, I remember. I don't remember exactly where I read it, and I don't remember year it was, but I remember the experience of it vividly. I think it was in the Village Boys, it might have been in the New York Times. And I'm not quite sure who wrote the, the review, it could have been Sally Baines. And I read the term and I went, thank God there's a name for what I do now. And I, and I just went, oh, that's mine, I'll take it. And from that moment on, I, I referred to myself as a postmodernist except for a brief period when, as I say, <coughs> everybody was sort of tearing the postmodern label off of their clothes. <laughs> the and going, I'm, I don't know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not here. Me? You must be crazy. Well, like all movements, people, you know, adhere to them and then really reject them. It's part yeah. of... But I took it back again. Yeah, because I think that in you, it, it, it's kind of like reshaped itself into something else. Well, I when I was in Europe, away from you know, uh, the New York scene, I and mean, nobody knew me, and, you know, I, I, and this work and this dialogue wasn't around, I started to realize how deeply the, the term actually resonated with me and how important it was. And I started to actually do research into it and um, try to find out what it meant. Can you <laughs> I implicitly knew it couldn't tell anybody for nothing. I say, well, I'm a postmodernist, and they go, oh, what is that? And I go, but what well, is come it? see my work. <laughs> what, it, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> At this point, I have talked about it so much that it's almost like I can't even get the words together. It's, um, uh, as I see it, and, and I demonstrate, because the viewpoints are postmodern, I demonstrate it like this. This is my newest technique. This is, you'll get this, postmodernism, exactly what it is. You can go tell your friends <laughs> in one half minute. Okay. <laughs> I, the first time I did it was so beautiful. I can't do it as good. Anymore. 
So it's like, this is the, <coughs> these are the things of the world, whatever they are. I don't care. You know, <laughs> it's just your shirt, your pants, whatever. The zipper, <coughs> you know, uh, New York, Milwaukee, uh, whatever. Okay. In modernism and classicism, which were the two big philosophic eras that preceded postmodernism, things looked like this. Right? Um, so, uh, if this is Milwaukee, then we would then immediately put Chicago in there, and then this, and then that, and there be this. There's an assumed order, and a <coughs> a sense that you can find the best way. It's like, oh no, wait, wait, wait. Or, you know, so you're looking, modernists and classicists look for the right way to do something, the perfect, the best. Yeah. And uh, what happened with postmodernism is that someone just sort of went, okay, they started rocking this tower, and they went, okay, ha! And suddenly, these, this, this, this vertical, hierarchical structure was no longer to be seen anywhere. Uh, anybody seen any order around lately? Um, <coughs> do you know if Milwaukee comes after? Oh, it doesn't matter, I guess. And then whatever it is, like the world became laid down on the horizontal, and that meant that Milwaukee was, uh, might as well be as equal to the solar can as, uh, you know, my shoe is to Santa Claus, if you want. Like, there's no, absolutely no sense of order in, in, in postmodernism unless you choose it. Right. So suddenly things got unglued. And, uh, to me, it was a bigger, much bigger shift in a way from than classicism to modernism, and that we're still in the throes of it. We're like. We're in shock. It's totally out of control. We don't know what we're doing. Mm. Life is right is scary. Uh, there are too many choices to make. Um, there's there's way too much. We call this the information age. That's a postmodern, I think, product of postmodernism, where um, uh, <coughs> you know, in in like in in modernism, all white women were pretty much the same. <laughs> And then we could also find principles by which all white women should act, live, what they should expect of themselves. You know, instead of the, the woman in the gray flannel suit era, the guy. And in postmodernism, all this new information comes out. It's like, hey, I'm a Capricorn. No. And on top of which, I'm from Montana. I'm a postmodern dancer, not a modern dancer. Uh, I like my coffee weak. Um, and, and a billion different things come out, and like, that's me. And, and, and people are not gathering up into categories very well anymore. You're like, no, no, that's not me in there. I'm, 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 I'm specifically this. So. You know what's interesting? When, <laughs> when I first got to ETW, that was one of the first ideas that kind of like shocked me. Yes, I think the classicism departed that there was this natural order, you know, and that things. You know, there was an absolute way in which a painting would be beautiful. You know, the painting was beautiful. You know, it was beautiful. 
everyone could appreciate that it was beautiful. It was this, this absolutist idea of what, as you say, was right, was wrong. And in modernism, man became more the center, but man, kind of man's feelings and man's emotions. But, or women, I should say. Sorry, oops. Um, but what interested me when I first got to ETW was that all of a sudden, especially in theatrical terms, you know, in theater, the text is so much more at the top of that hierarchy that you're talking about. So the text is here, and then everything else is built around to support this thing, right? And it's a very vertical structure. You know, the acting support is supposed to make this text believable, and then the set is supposed to make the acting believable, and then the lights are supposed to make the set scene, and then, you know, there's this whole thing that supports the text. And in that world, the director's job is kind of reduced to making a world in which the text can be believed. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting because at the time I was reading this, the work of this man called Tadeusz Kantor, who was this great Polish director. And he was talking about a theater where each one of the elements had its own line of discourse, so that the lights had their own language of talking about the subject that you know, we were talking about, or that, you know, that sound had its own vocabulary and that sets, so that what you were doing not, was not homogenizing so that all the elements kind of went in the same direction to support the text, but that they were fighting each other to talk about the text, which is somewhat different from what you were talking about, but it is a dehierarchization of, of like the elements that, of construction. And, and th- listening to you talk, I mean, being at ETW at that moment was a great relief, because I said, oh, so what a director must really do in, in terms of creating theater is really understand how lights speak, is really understand how music speak, is really understand how sound speak, is really understand how the actors communicate, find all the ways in which all those elements speak for themselves, and then not try all of them to come into one thing, but trying to allow each of them to speak. Mm-hmm. And that, that too, I must say that to me, that was, uh, that was like, oh, how exciting. It was like one of those... But how did that lead you to start articulating the viewpoints? Uh, well, that the viewpoints were a project that I started when I was about 11 years old, which is an incredible amount of humorous. I was exposed to a big group of painters in Montana. And everything in Montana is extremely noticeable because it's so minimalist up there. It's like, you really, you have to pay attention. It's very easy. And um, these painters would have these, because it was the distances between them were so great, they would come together in these raging, roaring parties with their kids and wives and everybody and hang out for a week together. And I would uh, always be sitting at the table, you know, huge ears listening, listening, listening. And um, they talked and talked and talked and talked and talked about their work. Technical talk. and. I started to, I started dancing at nine, I started choreographing at 11, and, um, uh, and I, I, I thought, you know, it's like nobody, there's no language here, there is no language. So I'm looking at books, you know, and I'm sorry, but I'm very, very derogative about, um, derogatory about uh, dance writing. I can't stand it for the most part. Why? I call them almost all dance writing wedding reviews. It's like the bride had a little blue bow with a thing, you know, stuck to her foot and her husband was wearing rubber blouse and um, <laughs> there was a cake and Miss and Mrs. So-and-so came. And, 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 you know, I was like, okay. That's very interesting. <laughs> you know, and, 
there's no structure. There's no reference to structure in the in, in dance writing. Because there's no reference to structure in dance writing, you never can see the evolution of the artist's work. I mean, we don't know anything about balancing. Right. We don't. Nobody can talk about it. You know? And it drove me crazy. So anyway, I thought, uh-oh, this is very, very bad for me. I need a vocabulary. I'm going to go look for one. <laughs> and it, I did. I, I looked and looked and looked. And that was why what Cunningham, I saw it in Cunningham, I went, these people are using tools. They're using words. I can smell it. You know? They're not, they're not doing this hierarchical thing of like, you know, dance heels or something. They're going like foot, space, arm, time, foot, time, space, shape. Yeah. So it was, I was looking for that, that vocabulary. And I, and I started, I recognized there, I came to New York, and you know, everybody was doing it. What I call the activity that was going on in New York was, I, I refer to it as, uh, in everybody was inventing the wheel backwards. Um, we weren't interested in finding out how to do things or how you did things. We were interested in unfinding out how you did things so that we could look at things in a different way. So it's like unchoreographing, un undancing, untheatering, unacting, unpainting. <laughs> and uh, so that the stuff could come back alive and be you know, in, in true activity of, of crea creativity instead of copying, following, formalizing, having the painting tell you what to do. And when, were the, it, when was ETW created? You know, you guys were so good at creating this thing. And did anybody ever keep records of it? Nobody. We have had a history. And that's when you were forced to kind of begin to articulate to other people what the six viewpoints were. Yeah, they were already made. They were made. Yeah, yeah. And the first person I articulated to was, this is Wendell Beavers, everybody. Um, was to Wendell. <coughs> when um, I, got, I got sick and, and I had to teach my class. And I, you know, wrote the viewpoints down for the first time. <laughs> It was fascinating. We were doing a relay team teaching thing where I'd sort of give him formula for the class. He would interact with, you'd do it with the students, come back and say, well, this and this and this happened. I go, that means I think we should be going there. Uh, and that's, it's interesting because by the time I got there in 87, it, it felt really structured. It felt like you guys knew what you were doing. It felt that way. Now I know better, but it felt that way. It, it really felt like, Yeah. 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 
I think it's interesting because uh, Mary is writing a book about all of this, and I just read the first draft of the first few chapters, and I was like, I was reading, I was thinking, so this is what we're doing. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, but I, I appreciated that I did that it wasn't as clear then because a lot of what we were learning had to do with experience. It wasn't only with understanding; it was with you know learning how to experience. And it's because so much of that's what you were doing, mm -hmm. right? Can you, do you have like a, a, a definition of what the viewpoints are? Yeah, I do. It's, it's here, you know, in these pictures of things. That's um, <coughs> um, for the people who are going to be reading this. Yeah, yeah. So the viewpoints are, as I, as I see it, um, <laughs> six, possibly seven. <laughs> 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 you're here first. I'm really thinking of it. Um, but we can't do that without Congress. <laughs> but uh, there are <coughs> six languages of perception that exist in the theater. And I just sort of, you know, went, oh, well, what is here? And um, so there's, there's the space that the, that the performance happens. There's the time, I call this the 8 to 10. I like to make jokes about this. So it's like from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock, you've got this time thing. Mm -hmm. I also do that to abstract things, so it's like, uh, you've got whatever design there is in the theater, including the bodies. I call that shape, design, objects, how they look. You've got <coughs> emotion, because so people art and people have always got emotions because they're like, I call it the dog sniff dog world, just to get past Grotowski and everybody else. Um, in, in that, <coughs> as human beings, we cannot mask our, our feelings, truly. And I sometimes say that um, uh, you can have a person walk through a room and exit, and then we can all sit and go, well, and probably be able to talk for almost 15 minutes on that about like the health, the mental stability, the attitude, things you really pick up, you know, it's like, we're, we're acute. So there's that emotion that goes in there. <coughs> then there's uh, movement, generally, because it's not a static art form. And, <coughs> and then because we because of this eight to 10 thing and all of these other things going on, we have story, I call it story, or to abstract it more, logic. Right. And uh, in the old days, now it's getting to be no fun to call it to say story, because people used to, in the real dyed in the wool abstract days when things were really minimal, people would go, ah, no, 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 there's no story. Then I go, yes, there is. And they go, no, there's no story in my work. And I go, yes, there is. And then I would say, well, story is logic. So. And the viewpoints, I mean, and, and this is like before the viewpoints and before postmodernism, all of these things were stacked in this direction for dance and theater. So basically for theater, the script, the words, and the emotion was the, hi the highest on the total pole. And everything else followed, like I always describe it as. 
if um, Stanley in Streetcar Named Desire is angry at Blanche, he screams. And he stays there and, uh, you know, generally, you know, does this with his fist and stomps around and, In, in in a normal, quote-unquote, normal, realistic treatment of streetcar named desire. With, but if you break that down in a, in a postmodern, non-hierarchical sense, um, you can experiment around with a very slow-paced uh, anger, a very gentle kind of anger, um, uh, in terms of body language, yeah, like limp, um, doesn't move at all in <laughs> space, right? And suddenly you're getting all kinds of strange interpretations of anger that you never, you never realize that people have so many different ways of being angry. And I always get in trouble when I say this, but I always do it anyway. My version of realism I think that realism is very abstract, and that abstraction is very real. So I flip the two, and I'm not going to describe that. <laughs> but I think if you, in this, in these tools of the viewpoints <coughs> laid on this on this level, um, you can find more realism here than you could have found in in the old use of them in modern. Sound. Yeah. <coughs> it's always been a debate for years. You know, so I, I used to just think of it as a completely separate art form, like light is also a separate art form in the theater. And I don't know. <laughs> Since the viewpoints, from the viewpoints until now, what have you been thinking about? Um, where, where is this kind of search, theoretical description of things going? What happens with the viewpoints, or what has happened, I mean, for me, is, is that uh, for many years, I just sat in them. Because like within each one of these elements of perception in the theater is an unbelievable amount of information. I mean, you just go on and on and on and on and on and on, investigating space. I mean, it's not, you know, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I'll never find the end of it. I mean, and I've been incredibly content to just bathe in them, you know, and, and um, <coughs> play around with them, play around with communicating them and, you know, creating from them, deconstructing other people's work from them, looking at the world that way. And, yeah. and, yeah. It's interesting because when, I remember when I first, when it was first explained to me, the viewpoints were explained as a way of uh, understanding and creating theater, which I thought was great, mm -hmm. you know. It's like, oh, as you say, it's a key in. It's a new way of looking at it. It doesn't mean it's about meaning, it's about this, it's about that. It's a, a very strong formal approach to what's happening on the stage. And, almost, and it forces you 
because of that, to think about the elements, to think about what each one does independently. And then you can take the step of, okay, so how do I mix and match and create mm -hmm. things? But the other thing about viewpoints that really was a very striking thing for me is that it's so much about what happens in the room you're in. And now that I hear you talk so much about Cage and Cunningham and those people being so much at the core of what you were doing, it becomes so clear that they had the impact that they had on you. And the kind of immediacy, and it's so interesting that you're describing it to us using the cops, because the cops are here in this room with these people. And I, there was something that, you know, I've never articulated this until now, but something that, that we kind of understood about that, that it is about what happens in that room, mm -hmm. that it is about what happens at between 8 and 10. Mm -hmm. It is about that. And so much of theater and dance up to that point was based on, on and I'm going to use this word very freely, but fiction, that it was about another place and another time and another, you know, rather than, okay, we're here, you know, these people are breathing, we're breathing, they're moving, they're shifting, we're responding to them, we're responding to whether they're listening to whether they're not listening to, you know. And that, it was, it was, a, a, it was, re, it was, for me at that moment, it was this kind of, um, it really forced me to kind of say, what is it? What is theater? And it's interesting, you know, over the past three years, I've been asking that question a lot, you know, yeah. like, what is theater? And what is dance? And what is performance? And what is, what is this thing we do? What is it? What is it? I think it's different for every person who creates music. Mm -hmm. And that uh, performance that theater companies or like uh, movements, like we're in a movement of a certain sort, we're attracted or have similar ideas about what theater is. Um, but other people have a completely different thing. And, and uh, I think that it's, <coughs> I, I can do this really briefly, I think, but I once uh, was supposed to teach a composition class and I just was so tired of it. It was a horrible exercise in futility as far as I was concerned. <laughs> you know, if you're gonna teach a composition class, every person in the room in the class, you have their own studio at least working for a day. So they can really create and know what it is to create and know what that dialogue is about. And um, so I sort of was refusing, just like, whoa! And uh, came up with this idea that I wouldn't teach composition unless. Uh, each person in the class could tell me what they wanted to say with their art. Then we could start. <laughs> and these were 18 year olds too. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, that's going to be a little tricky. And we'll probably go nowhere this semester because everybody is sort of running around going, ah! But I, then I devised this little trick where I said, okay, first day of class I asked them, you have three more classes to create a piece of work for the theater you can use any vocabulary you want to use anything you want the only thing you have to do is <laughs> uh, put in your mind that you are Andy Warhol or Robert Wilson or me, and that you are world famous everybody's work about what they were what their artistic project in life was 
we analyzed ourselves as the audience. We said, well, what did that make you feel? What did you feel? Um, and in answering the question of what we saw, not what that person was trying to show us or what they did show us, but what we saw, <coughs> we found 14 radically different voices in the theater. Radically different voices. And I don't mean, I mean, there, w there was a girl who believed, you know, and the funny thing is that each time you believe something, you believe that everybody, of course, believes that. And that's what theater is, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, no. There was one girl who believed um, in this sense of kind of Buddhist sharing, communal observation thing. And boy, could she get us to do it. We would just sit there and go. Perfectly content with the most small little gestures. Yeah. And then, you know, another one that was Lee Seacrest was in there. And <coughs> she liked to do the circus tricks, which she couldn't do. Talented, <laughs> 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 right? Worked anyway. We were just amazed. You know, it was like we were having a ball <laughs> and being entertained. And she's still doing that. She still performs that way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's what the theater is to her. Tricks. And she does a magnificent job of composing those tricks, too. Uh, someone else this one might think of. For him, theater was this unbelievably sensual thing. <laughs> so well, he, this is how he speaks as an actor. Yeah, it's just, and I was like. <laughs> I felt like I had really discovered something, I was like, <laughs> out of that classroom with a shot. I was like, Kevin, Kevin! <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, that's, you know, I think theater is different for everyone. No, it's interesting. Mike Nichols has this thing he says that it's, that I, I kind of find so at the core of it, which is that when you see an actor perform on stage, what you're seeing is the reason why he thinks he's on stage. <laughs> you know? And that is kind of not the dissimilar from what, what you're talking about. I, I love this this idea. I wish it was more prevalent uh, in our training while we're here in the house. Because of, I think that we would be able to individuate more and go much further. You know, that that um, we, we, we do, we have silent traps and of course it's not. Do I look like a dancer? Does that look like a dance to me? <laughs> <laughs> you had what? Had an arabesque in it. Arabesque. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's exactly three, you know, I think, to follow our own voice. It's one of the things I admire about. Um, I feel like took off and just started <laughs> taking <laughs> voice out of work. <laughs> you know how we call Tectonic Theater Project for a long time? Because <laughs> you could always find us somewhere in New York carrying things. I remember once we were doing this thing with, with AstroTurf, and Jeff had to go all the way to Brooklyn and bring this huge truck in the middle of the rain with no... And, we, oh, yeah. and the only truck we could afford had no rearview mirrors, <laughs> and he had never driven a truck before. And it was New Jersey. <laughs> 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 
Thank you. Anyone from New Jersey? Okay, I have just a little bit more I'd like to say about the viewpoints yeah. for people. Uh, one thing is you asked me, you know, what, how I took my journey with them. And <clears throat> after this long period of time of like residing with them, I went through a very, very scary time for myself where I wasn't able to teach them. It really went on for a long time. I think it's about five years or more. might have even been seven. <laughs> and um, when I actually witnessed the last class I was teaching them, when I couldn't teach me. And <clears throat> that, was a, that was a very mysterious time with the work. Um, what I was doing was I was convinced, absolutely convinced, that there was a flaw in that theory. And that that flaw was very dangerous. And <clears throat> I wasn't, and I went looking for it, you know, it was like... <laughs> And I couldn't teach them anymore. I go, okay, we're going to do the space exercise today, you know, like, um, well, I mean, just imagine that you're in. Who <laughs> 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 was I? Um, Grand Central Station. And there are bowling balls and pigeons flying around. And, he, you know, you get the idea. <laughs> <laughs> I realized, I mean, while I was teaching the class, this is one of the beautiful things about teaching, I think, but that, um, that I couldn't communicate or put these people through exercises consequently or teach them in any way that was directed. And so I said, okay, we're going to have a really weird class. You're not going to understand me at all. So you just go ahead and do what you want to do. <laughs> it was great. I loved it. I really loved it. It was complete madhouse. But in a certain sense, deep education, do you know what I mean? It's like, there is no director in this room. This is a class that you're studying yourself. <laughs> and over those uh, seven years, I really do think it was seven years, um, I found it. I found the flaw. What was it? And, and, I, and I have to say, I always say this, I found it just in time, it's in my past. Because if I hadn't found it in Amborgo who come out with that book, which this actually threatened me for a while, doesn't anymore, uh, uh, I would have been devastated. I don't think I would have ever gotten it. I was very lucky that I found out what was wrong with the people. <laughs> and what was wrong with them, quote unquote wrong with them, <coughs> was this thing that had been bothering me more and more all along. And that was that I understood this system very well, and I loved it, and I loved its teaching method, and I loved what it did to people, I loved how it, how it worked in the world of theater, and I was just really happy with it. Um, I didn't understand it in relationship to creativity, to the artist, who, like for instance my artist, I start my projects generally by going like, taking myself into a mental empty room going, okay, what is it? You know, and, and the answer just comes, like shoelaces, or spatial constructions this year. But so, something comes, I don't know where it comes from. And the research is somewhere not in there, it's not in here. This, this helps me get in and out, see what I've done. But there's, 
And I couldn't, I couldn't understand the relationship between artist and theory, <coughs> even though this is one of the loosest theories there is, because um, it's an experiential theory. Um, and this man named Robert Schwartz, Schwartz who's a, a man in Holland who was teaching a workshop on the relationship to space, the relationship of space to human thinking. I was there in a flash, I was like, um, and in that workshop, <laughs> he was incredible. Uh, he came up with this, this, this term called reification, which is the process by which you take an experience, pure experience, there's no words like that, and then you put a label on it, boom. That was, that was where the flaw was, because I didn't really understand that, how the world worked that way. You know, I had come up with all the labels. We've all had these labels forever. There's space in here, blocking. Um, <coughs> but what one does with the blocking, you know, like how one gets one's kinky idea about it, is, is a whole other thing. And, um, you know, that, that, that this activity, that artists do, right? Mm -hmm. the moment of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why? I don't know. But, and that's an, that comes from the unreified world. When I put an actor over there, suddenly it's reified. It's like the actor starts against the wall. But how I got the actor against the wall is from from his other vocabulary, and <coughs> and when I found that out, it was more than finding the flaw in a certain sense. I felt like I was truly an educated human being. I really was. Like, <laughs> 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 you know, it's like really. I'm going through right now another heyday with them. Something strange is coming in. It's evolving. Yeah, yeah. They've gotten real little subtle. So, I have a question really for both of you. Um, the, the theory, we were talking about theories earlier, and, and these theories and the uh, rehearsal process of exploration and sort of uh, making the connection between the creativity and the vocabulary and, and to get, to come to some kind of a performance to that, you know, like that kind of slot. During the performances, what do you think is the, the responsibility of creativity and exploration after you're in essence done and the actors are, and all the other elements are in place? What you know, what role does all of it play in the actual playing of it as it goes forward and gets repeated over and over again? Because once you've gone through kind of the experience of looking for, finding, creating, where does the experience go from there? So. 
No, I, I think, you know, this goes back to that question of what is theater. And, uh, each, you know, and I, was, I was watching this television program with Peter Brook, and he said, I love the way he can make these statements and not sound foolish. Mm -hmm. He says, theater is life. But like straight, like straight, look straight into the camera. Theater is life. And then he went on to articulate what he thought that. And, <laughs> and that actually, that's really modernist in that sense that you're talking about. But to me, theater is first and foremost a form of communication. A form of communication between, a group, between two groups of people. The group of people who make the work and the group of people who are experiencing the work. And to me, what was interesting about being for two years at ETW and kind of being exposed to this kind of, not only system itself, but the way you were thinking about it, was that it led me to kind of understand, tr try to really explore what the elements are of this construction that you create so that it can talk to a body. So I'm very interested in how do you put these elements together? How do you how do you like scramble them and put them back together so that this new thing can talk to an audience? And I think that once that is once that has happened, the the actor's process from then on becomes in the moment of the performance, how can you keep that communication flowing? so that the process is never ending because the process of creation, the, the true process of the theater is a process of communication. So in a way, I mean, people who work with me know that I come back every month and we, and we, and we talk about how, you know, what's going on, how, 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 that, how the flow is going, how, how, you know, how that's happening. You have a very interesting way of thinking about it because Mary talks about in, in her book about the audience is like a piano that the performers play, um, and I, I, I think that that, that that makes it alive in that moment, and that's where the theory continues. I think I don't know. I'm speaking for you, but mm -hmm. um, or, or I, I also I, um, <coughs> mm I have this very profound curiosity about what it is that, that happens between directors and choreographers, dancers, directors, and actors. And um, and in the dance world, we get to watch some very interesting kind of glacial mutation happen that you don't get to see in theater, which is that a choreographer will start out with a company and then they'll get another company and their work is on and then they get another company and another company and the work is the same and the choreographer is the same. <coughs> but the companies, the dancers change. And um, you start to see a very odd phenomenon, I think, which is the work isn't as good in the second company as it was in the first not as good in the third as it was in the second. And that, that, that it starts to go through a very peculiar kind of erosion, I think. I mean, just being very cruel about it, I really feel that. And, um, and I've been curious about that. Um, also, I have a really hard time directing choreography. Uh, a, a, 
and off to Pollard in the Acceptable. <coughs> and I wasn't doing that, and that was terrible. I'd see something like that. Really encouraging. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they had longer though. You can't even look at what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. I'd be thinking of <laughs> So I stopped doing that. That was one of the things that was pulling my work. I, I got scared. I was, I've always been scared of dancers up to the point now. I'm not anymore. I was terrified of them. Why did they like me? Why were they doing this? And what did they want? <laughs> I was like, and uh, and I, 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 my answer to that one was I realized that um, what I owed them and what they, what, they, what they wanted from me or what I could give them was the chance to grow, um, which is a profound thing. I wasn't just using them, I was really giving them, using myself to help them grow because that's what a performer wants to do, they want to get there. And <coughs> Uh, that, and also, it sounds really kitschy, uh, as a great postmodern, I want to make them look like stars. I pledge that I would do that. You know, at every, every performance. Um, my job was to make them look good. <laughs> Darling. You know, which was, brought me much closer to my craft. You know, I could see like hip soccer. I mean, I designed it. It wasn't good for that hip soccer. You know, mm. and it was cruel. It would be cruel to make them do it. But from that also, I came up with this funny thing that I think that performers are like doctors, specialists, surgeons, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. And they come in and they treat the patient, which is the director of choreography. And Directors and choreographers are very, very ill. <laughs> they don't know what's wrong with them. They're rather inarticulate. <laughs> and it's the doctors who come and like pull out what's wrong with the patient. Some questions here, please. Can you talk more specifically about the 
<laughs> Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> um, here's a real, like, easy example of this. Is that <coughs> in uh, my choreography, the spatial pattern, I'm, uh, I'm like a stickler for it. And it's, um, and I will really truly believe also that um, if a spatial pattern is not well executed, it's just in general executed, you've got a huge hole in the theater where the audience kind of goes like, instead of like that. And um, sometimes performers have a very hard time identifying space and <coughs> being accurate with it. Very often they do. And from that, I will suggest they put their attention in different places. You know, like, how far are you from the wall? Can you, you know, can you feel this trajectory? Let's try it again. You know, so that I, I help them, coax them into being able to do space. I, I do that a lot. particular example. The, the, um, <laughs> what Andy, Andy was it, do you want to talk about that? I don't know what to, to say about it except that it, in some senses dealt so strongly with form and that the set was very formal and that the, the, the spatial and, and within that kind of structure I mean you talk about this a lot I talk about you know give me a bunch of rules and I will fly you know it's like give me a little bit of structure and then within that you can read because you kind of don't have to think about it I mean I remember the first time that we discovered that in act one in Gross and DCC there had to be two rows of table one slightly higher it was an astonishing discovery. So that's the form. Of course, that's what it has to be. That's how you can talk about this in the way that we want to be talking about it. It was like, you know, this great thing within that. You know, that was the given. So I believe a lot in givens. I mean, the viewpoints are given. It's like this is the, uh, this is the tools with which we're working. You choose to work that way. So within that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> why a particular thing had evolved and I knew I was like I could 
I knew I was up against the wall, and so I would very quickly sort of, we would work it out together. Okay, okay, well, let's work backwards from this particular container. And it was actually an amazing way to work. It was very liberating. Mm -hmm. But I had to own up to the fact yeah, that, right. yeah, right, I had, we had to, I mean, in that sense, they're really, you know, performers are really doctors. They can tell when you're lying. Mm -hmm. Randall. Well, so, you know, it's interesting because the, 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 when, you, when you just talked about your, Mary, your journey through um, uh, your relationship to viewpoints and, the, and learning communication, um, the second time I heard that story, the first time I heard it, I was 18 and I was in the studio and I had no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> you get one chip of the viewpoints, the rest, if you're, if you're smart and you keep working and you're interested in them and you know how that chip, if you really got it, you know, which is this whole investigative experiential phenomenon that they represent, um, the rest will come to you slowly. It'll all get worked out in the end. You'll find them, you know, because they're there to be found. And so it doesn't bother me where people start or stop or if they've got them right or wrong or, you know, it's just, it's very interesting to me. And, and the other thing about that is that <coughs> there's like, the, there are the viewpoints, but there's also their attitude. And everybody gets their attitude in one class. So I never worry about that. And that has to do with separate the little mothers, you know, separate your vocabulary, put it on a table and work with it. And, uh, I think almost everyone gets that very, very fast, and then they go off with it. And it, that's a tremendous delight to me. It's like, um, it's like educated. <laughs> I, I care about educating the theater. Thank you. Bye. Just a thought, just one aspect of it, but when you said that about space, it occurred to me that in a way, a vocabulary as an actor performer 
to naturally be grantees, to naturally be two worlds, or, and to not be overcome by one viewpoint, but to have a variety of mm-hmm. Do you think it's natural to the actor? Well, I'm, I'm saying this is a way for the actor to naturally to be distant. This is a way for them to be connected and yeah. But what, yeah, what I what, what the difference between I think six viewpoints and, and breath is that you know in breath that alienation and that distance is very specifically about politics, and I think that the similarity is that viewpoints is a different change of consciousness. You know, breath was departing. You know, when Brecht was articulating his ideas, he was departing. He was fighting against expressionism and this kind of really bombastic kind of work that was happening before him. And he was like, "Wait a minute, you know, that's not it." And he was trying to to find the performer thinking about other things. His, the other things that he was trying to get the performer to think about were very specific. And I think that what you're trying to get them to think about is very specific. What I'm trying to get them to think about is very specific. But it's each one is a different. Dif- yes, the three of Please know that we just put ourselves with breath in the same breath. It's like the three of us were really <laughs> trying to, uh, you know. It was me. Thank you. Uh, I think that that, that it, there is this sense that there is anotherness, and it has to do with this way of like working. That it is, you know, about other things. That it's not only about experience. That it is about other forms of dialogue with the audience. Um, <coughs> I'm always profoundly moved at reactions that people get, especially if, if it's an older actor who comes in to study the viewpoints. Um, this happened at the conference quite a lot. Okay. People, the second day, there were people in shock walking around, like, and totally unmasked, you know, and like near tears and, you know, and, and just like, <laughs> And they they make statements like, my God, I'm finally here in the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't have to pretend anymore. I can relax. I can be here. I can work. And after all those years of thinking that they that they had to be everything, do everything, make everything be responsible for everything, you know, instead of the space and the They, you know, there are things to, they discover things to interact with where they can spread their intelligence out and uh, deal with things mm-hmm. rather than this auto-deduct world that, that a lot of performers think They were able to create everything. Yeah. Able to do yeah, everything rather than, well, who was it, I think, was it Grotowski that said that acting is reacting? <laughs> and that in a way that implies an awareness of a certain number of things.
you think about the possibilities, it's not about this stifling what I think of as orthodoxy. And I, and I think when you say, you know, that what you want from performance is something specific, it's it's specific, but it's many things. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing, and you don't want a thing from an audience. And I think that's what's mm-hmm. exciting to me about that is that, I mean, uh, you know, how many times do we see plays last night that was playwright? That it was just exhausting. It's crushing. There's one thing I want to say about, we were talking a lot before about playing an audience like a piano, and that I'm listening to it, and it sounds really bad, and it not meant to, to connote that you're playing the audience, but I think that the audience is a very sensitive instrument. Thank you for listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.